Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Stretch. Get it all out. It's really good. <sighs> Emily Kelsall is stretching as though she's warming up for a run. But the 25-year-old climate activist is actually getting ready to sit down with me on a park bench to tell her story. Emily is about to lay bare how the threat of climate change scared her, caused her to take actions that led to jail, and then nearly destroyed her mental health. I'm Laura Lynch, by the way, and you're listening to What on Earth? And I'm starting here with my first chance encounter with Emily. It was here, on this path above the ocean in West Vancouver. I, the first time I saw you was down at the other end. Yeah. And I didn't know who you were then. Yeah. And you were sitting on a rock cross-legged and you looked like you were meditating. I might have been. I might have been. <laughs> I thought so. <laughs> so she was a stranger to me, but after chatting that day, we discovered a coincidence. Emily's mother, Andrea, had actually written to the show nominating her as a climate hero for what she called Emily's painful daily battle with anxiety and depression. And Emily was more than willing to talk. What struck me that day, aside from the sheer coincidence, <laughs> was the fact that you were so willing and wanting to share your story. Why was that? Or why is that, I guess? I think the story that I've lived and I've experienced maybe parallels a lot of other people's experiences as well. And I'm also excited to tell my story because my story has a lovely conclusion. And so I'm like happy to share the full arc. All right, just a warning. Some listeners might find parts of this story hard to hear about. We'll be talking about severe mental health struggles. And it's important to note Emily is going to tell her story knowing there will be some who criticize her actions. But Emily is sharing it as a way to help people understand the extreme nature of the climate anxiety some people are now experiencing and how she came through it. And later on, I'll speak to two people who research mental health and climate change about the issues Emily's story raises. So here we are back once again on this West Vancouver trail where we first met. Her dad is here for support and he's sitting nearby as she starts talking. So I was always an anxious kid growing up. Like I had a lot of anxieties and phobias. I was scared of elevators. I was scared of escalators. I was scared of bridges going over Lionsgate Bridge. I was sure it would collapse. But when I found out about global warming, it shook me to my core. I was like, this can't be true. I was so worried. And I would like obsessively check with my mom. I'd be in the back of her car looking at the temperature gauge when I was just a little kid. And I'd be like, is this normal? Is this temperature normal? Any sign I saw of the world changing or getting warmer really impacted me. So I, I was sort of in this state of denial for a long time where I would like Google on my little iPod touch being like, is climate change a hoax? But then I grew older and I sort of accepted that it was happening. 
By the time she was 14 or 15, Emily had jumped headfirst into activism as a way to combat her anxiety. She'd gotten involved with local kids' climate action groups and with a national group called Our Horizon, working to get labels pasted on gasoline pumps warning about the effects of climate change. I was doing activism and sometimes it felt good, but below it there was something I hadn't dealt with, which was this huge burden of guilt and responsibility. I had sort of like concocted the story in my head that it was my destiny to save the world. And you know, I had it all mapped out in my head. I would do it by the time I was 20, climate change would be solved and I could, I could relax, right? I could just spend the rest of my life chilling out and writing plays and kicking my feet up in a small town somewhere. But the things that my brain was telling me to do, a lot of the times they were like bordering on obsession. Well, not bordering, they were obsession. And while I was dealing with this, I was also dealing with a lot of other mental illnesses. I had depression, anxiety about things unrelated to climate change. I had OCD type symptoms, you know, just like a myriad of things. And that also bled into my activism as well. Yeah, the burden she felt eventually pushed Emily to more extreme forms of activism. One example, she says she spent time sitting in a tree in Burnaby, B.C., with a group dedicated to stopping the Trans Mountain Pipeline Expansion Project, TMX is twinning the Alberta to British Columbia pipeline. It's a project the government has said will generate revenue, revenue it says it needs, to meet Canada's climate targets. In recent years, protesters have spent time sitting in trees along the pipeline route, slowing work on the project. Piece by piece, crews dismantled the treetop camp in the Brunette River Conservation Area in Burnaby. Trans Mountain Pipeline protesters have occupied the tree houses since this. But that protest isn't what landed Emily in jail. She believed in what she was doing, but she says over time it got harder and harder. So there's kind of like two stories. One story is a story of someone that's trying to take action. And then underneath there's this dark, I guess, shadow self of someone who's taking actions compulsively, not because they want to and feel that it's the right thing to do, but doing it because they feel like they have to. And if they don't, something bad's going to happen or the blame is on them. And they're two different sides of my story. So the tree stuff, for the most part, was very legitimate. And it was like a part of me and what I wanted to do and I had a good group of friends and we sat in the tree and we delayed work. I was doing everything I could but my brain was pressuring me to do more and it was um it it got it got scary so the tree sitting I eventually left the tree sitting not because I didn't believe in it but because my anxiety reached a point where I couldn't actually do it without getting overwhelmed and consumed by this feeling that the pipeline was like my fault. And that whole time that I was doing that, I wasn't allowing myself to feel what was underneath all that, which was a lot of fear, helplessness, and grief. Eventually, Emily came up with another way to protest the Trans Mountain Pipeline by dressing up in an inflatable dinosaur suit and attempting to disrupt work. 
The group was called T-Rex against TMX. I started it in this period where I was dealing with all my depression and my anxiety and my compulsions. And so I wanted to do something that could potentially make a difference, but still felt like me. So it felt like this intervention where it was like not doing all the scary stuff my brain was telling me to do. Nothing violent, nothing angry. It was soft and funny and beautiful. And then in May of 2022. We had this concept that we were going to go jump the fence into one of the TMX work sites. We were going to set up a badminton net and play badminton in our T-Rex suits. So we had a bunch of supporters. It was T-Rex sports day. It was super fun. We hopped the fence. We walked down. Um, we set up our badminton net. We lost our birdie, so we just played imaginary badminton. So when she says we, Emily means herself and a friend who was also dressed up in a T-Rex costume. There's a court injunction, though, on that site to prevent interference in the pipeline. So the workers on site called the police. So I turned to my friend and I was like, we got to get out of here. So we ran up the hill in our giant inflatable T-Rex suit. We hopped the fence and uh, we turned around and the police were there. And they handcuffed us and they walked us to the police van. In the months that followed that arrest and before she went on trial, Emily's obsessive thoughts led to yet another extreme act. In this video posted to Twitter by the group Stop Fracking Around in November of 2022, you can see Emily and another person squirting maple syrup on an Emily Carr painting at the Vancouver Art Gallery, and then they kneel in front of it, saying their piece. This is our future. That was a little messed up. And I'm very lucky that nothing actually, like, came out of that. Well, there, there was no damage to the painting, let's no, be clear about There was that. no damage to the painting, for one thing, which I'm, I'm very, very glad about. Let me just stop there for a second. Vandalizing property like a painting can lead to criminal charges. And while the gallery says it supports free expression, it calls what Emily did misguided and it condemns acts of vandalism. But Emily was never charged. So basically... There's activism and then there's like reactivism, which are like two different things. For me, reactivism is when you are so distraught and anxious and fearful about what's going to happen to the world. And logically in my head at the time, I thought, this doesn't really make sense. Like, why are we throwing maple syrup at an Emily Carr painting of all things or I don't really think this is going to have the impact that we want it to but like those thoughts were drowned out by this sort of like bully in my head that was like if you don't do everything in your power to raise awareness about climate change x and y z grandchildren in the future are going to be so mad at you so I was like okay I'll do it but I didn't do it because it was out of a place of love and hope and courage and desire for a better world but so did you feel badly after it I was going to ask you how you felt right after you did it kind of just like I wish I stayed in bed that morning Now, Emily wants to be clear, she's not saying all activists who take extreme actions are dealing with mental illness, but anxiety and obsessive thoughts were part of Emily's own reasons for the art gallery stunt. Looking back, she really doesn't feel good about what happened. You have 50% of people or more who are like, that was the dumbest thing I've ever seen in my life. And then you have 50% of people who are like, 
go you, that's great. All that does is create this like polarization. Meanwhile, this like pipeline's getting built. What, what do you say to people who thought the kinds of things that you've done are ridiculous and, and don't think it's right that you break the law? Sometimes it's necessary to break the law. Sometimes the law is so unjust and so wrong that people should break it. You know, for example, like segregation between people of different backgrounds and races. That's a bad law. People should break that law. Drag queens not being allowed to perform in Florida. In my opinion, that's a bad law. That, that we are not allowed to fight or uh, obstruct fossil fuel development that is going to cause the death of millions of people and species. That's a bad law. Sometimes we should feel that it is correct. Sorry, let me think about that. So sometimes laws need to be broken. Sometimes. Other times, laws are broken unnecessarily. So for example, like the vandalism on the painting, I would say maybe that's not the law that we should be breaking. If we're going to break a law, maybe we should think about it a little longer before we decide what sort of danger we're going to put ourselves or potentially others into. I think activism is something that should make people's lives better, not just in the future, but also in the present. So if if we are not doing activism in a way that makes us feel empowered and alive and strong, and if we're not advocating for the values we believe in, like compassion, balance, humanity, we can't expect to build a future that we want. This is a realization she's come to at this point in her activist journey, a journey that has included time in jail. Emily pled guilty to criminal contempt for violating that court injunction during the T-Rex badminton stunt. And in January of this year, she was sentenced to 28 days in jail for disrupting work on the pipeline. In her judgment, B.C. Supreme Court Justice Shelley Fitzpatrick said she believed Emily presented a very high risk of reoffending. While Emily was serving her time, her anxiety and depression ramped up. Now, um, when your mother nominated you as a climate champion, you were in the hospital. Um, you've told us you feel comfortable talking about that. Um, what do you want to share about how and why you were there? Sure. So after I got out of jail, there was like that part of me that was doing well and was proud to be doing what I was doing and was advocating for what I believed in. And that part was real. And then there was this other part that had been gradually grabbing control of the steering wheel. And when I got out of jail, it just got worse. It got worse and worse and worse. I was paralyzed by fear and regret and worry for the future. I was in a dark place. I was not taking care of myself. I was not eating right. I was... It was, it was awful. I was not, like, in my right state of mind a lot of the time. I really felt like my life was ending. Like, I felt like it was only a matter of time before I did something that would seriously hurt myself. And worse than that, I felt like I needed to or I had to, you know, or, or the, the worst case scenario of climate change would happen. Like, I felt like I had all this power. I felt so scared of myself. So I was like, okay, sure, whatever. I'll go into the hospital. They have Ativan there. That's great. Ativan, that's an anti-anxiety medication that Emily has found to be helpful. So I went, I got my Ativan. I slept a lot. The sleep never felt like it was enough. And when I told 
the psychiatrists what I was feeling and what I was thinking about climate change and what I felt I had to do the psychiatrist was kind of confused because like climate change is a real issue so do you just want to take action on it like what do you what's your what's your deal right and so like a lot of the time psychiatrists would hear my anxiety and hear what I felt like compelled to do and they'd be like you don't have a problem luckily I had a psychiatrist and I thanked him later um he 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 admitted me over time, she says the doctors told her she was improving, but... I was not. I was just getting better at keeping the fear and the darkness inside. I was not getting better, but I was just like, I just want to emphasize, dark, dark place. I felt like my life was going down a funnel, like there was nothing I could do. It was gravity. Gravity was just pulling me towards this bleak, dark end and and my anxiety and mind was working in a way where I felt if I didn't go to this bleak dark end climate change would be my fault I'd be living with this burden responsibility I'd be a coward forever you know it was just it was really bad but then something unexpected happened I was on the unit and I was spending my days playing Scrabble taking Ativan writing as much as I could and I noticed there was this monk in the unit and it caught my attention because he was in full monk garb and he was a patient. And I was like, why is there a monk in the psych unit? So I went and I talked to the monk and he kind of just changed my life. And like after the conversation, it was so weird it was like this dimmer switch had been lifted from dark to light and everything changed the colors are brighter food tastes better i skip when i walk sometimes i like dancing (laughs) yeah my like anxiety is gone um a great majority of it at least my depression is completely gone my ocd symptoms are completely gone my ADHD symptoms are way better. I haven't been this happy or healthy in my entire life. This sounds like magic. What, what, what did he say? A lot of the things he said, people have been saying to me for a long time, you know, like, it's not all your fault. You're gonna make more of a difference when you're happy and healthy. I think it was sort of the way he said it. Generally, when I was super anxious, when I was like, what if, what if, what if, what if, right? Um, generally people would get a little bit anxious or irritated or sort of like pull away a little bit. The monk was very present. He was very grounded. When I was anxious and when I cried, he was there, present. He didn't pull away. He didn't freak out. He was present with my tears and he was like, yeah, just like let it out. It's better out than in. Yeah. She says talking to that monk shifted her view of climate change. I also looked at the world, and for the first time in a long time, I saw it as something separate than myself, which is compli- it's complicated because, you know, we're all connected, but not in the ways that I thought or believed. And I am one person, and I cannot control the entire world. The only thing that I can do is be 
the best version of myself that I can be to advocate for the things that I believe in, to do it in a way that is compassionate. I'm still scared of climate change, but for the first time ever, I'm facing my fear. So like before I would see something that scared me like a dying tree or a smoke in the air and I would immediately start worrying and I would leave my body. And now I'm kind of coming back into my body and I'm allowing myself to feel the fear and the helplessness underneath that fear, which I didn't let myself feel for a long time. And then I say, you're safe. You're allowed to feel what you're feeling. I'm here for you. What you're feeling makes sense. It makes sense that you're sad or you're angry during the climate crisis. And I've got you. You can trust me. We're going to do what we can. We're going to do our absolute best. And that helps a lot to give myself compassion. So what does the future hold for Emily? Well, she's not giving up on climate action, but she is taking a little time off for now to feel her feelings and, as she put it, to acclimatize herself to climate change. Before I was so mad, I had so much anger. I had anger at like politicians. I had anger at people that were building these pipelines. I don't feel that way anymore. I think it's a lot more valuable to show compassion to people and to give people room to exhibit growth and to say to a politician we don't have to agree on everything but let's work together to make a better future you know the people that are building the pipelines they deserve a future where they can make money and work on projects that aren't also going to damage their future we as people deserve a future where we can be happy and joyful and believe that there is hope for the future and not be oppressed by fear and sadness and anxiety. Emily is not sure what direction she'll eventually take. She loves writing and wants to tell stories that help people make sense of what's happening in the world. I also eventually want to start working with politicians and other young activists to form collaborative relationships to pass bills and to make changes that radically decrease our carbon emissions. Now, in all of this, Emily knows she lives a life of privilege. She's had the support of her family and access to treatment for her mental health. But she worries about other young activists and whether they're doing what's right for them. I think people that are worried about climate change, which is a lot of people, and people that suffer from climate anxiety, which is a lot of people, they can be taken advantage of. You're doing something, like I said, not because it might have the most amount of impact, but because you feel like you have to do something, anything to make a difference. So I think as activists and if you're a leader and an activist, it's really important to check in with the people that are doing the work and make sure that they're calm, ready and informed and emotionally supported when we're doing this work. One other thing, she sees a need for more mental health professionals who have a true understanding of climate anxiety. And unless we have healers and helpers and psychiatrists and psychologists who have done that work to process and really be able to be there with people who are still processing, we're still a long ways off. Can you be a support for others now? I think so. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, I'm actually really proud of myself. I've had some activists a couple days ago ask me for some advice and I was able to be there for them and sit with their emotions and feelings and I felt really proud of myself. I think that's another thing that I learned is that we can never lose hope. You know, even in the times where I was thinking, it's it for me. I had this survival urge to keep going. And sometimes I thought that survival urge was weak. I thought it was selfish, you know, to want to keep living. Now I see it as fundamental to who I am. And I think people should never give up hope, whether it's for themselves or for the climate as a whole, because like things can change on a dime. And I've learned that firsthand. So we always have to go forward thinking that things could go up from here because we, we really never know. So as Emily says, she is feeling much better. But if you or someone you know is struggling, there is help available. You can call Talk Suicide Canada at 1-833-456-4566. Again, that's 1-833-456-4566. Or between 4 and midnight Eastern Time, you can text 45645. That is 45645. And you can find more resources at suicideprevention.ca. That's all one word, suicideprevention.ca. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. You're listening to What on Earth? I'm Laura Lynch. And coming up, hitching a ride in cargo class. After a listener asked us whether you can climb aboard a cargo ship as an alternative to air travel, we asked Rohith Joseph to find out. But first... We just heard Emily Kelsall's story of how mental health and climate change can become such a challenge. And I've got two people with me now who are going to try to put her experience into context. Abe Singh Sachal is the founder of the nonprofit group called Break the Divide. He's researched the mental health of climate activists as a student of global health at the University of Toronto. Gina Martin has also researched climate change and youth mental health. She's an assistant professor in the Faculty of Health Disciplines at Athabasca University in Alberta. Hello to you both. Hello. Hi, Laura. Great to be here. Abe, I just want to start with you. When you heard Emily Kelsall talk about the intense climate anxiety she's felt, how does that compare with what you've heard from other young people? Yeah, no, it's something that all young people are feeling when we think about it. Like the statistics show up from the stories I've heard and from my own experiences, like climate emotions are very real. And I think something that came through in Emily's story is that it's not just anxiety. It's really complex feelings of grief, of loss, of helplessness, of hopelessness, but how that weaves in with feelings of hope and opportunity and excitement. And I think what Emily really said that really resonates with me and my experience is this sense of 
this individual burden of climate action. When I was 14, I had the opportunity to travel to the Canadian Arctic through the Students on Ice Foundation. And I was with 200 scientists, historians and musicians and students from around the world. But when I went to the Arctic, I went in with the impression that it would be my job to solve climate change. And I had this immense burden on my shoulders. And Emily said a very similar thing that she felt like she had to solve climate change. But it sounds like through Emily's experience, by the end of her journey and where she's at right now, through community and recognizing that she is connected with other people, that she feels stronger. I feel the same way. I know that in community, I'm stronger. And I know that young people are recognizing that it's only by changing the ways that we got to the situation and re reinventing the way that the world works that we can solve the climate crisis. Uh, Gina, Emily had anxiety even before her real awareness of climate change, but that quickly became her focus. Um, how can climate change add to the struggles for people who are already dealing with mental health challenges? What we're seeing right now is that when we're looking at the science, and it's very new, we are seeing that there's this link between climate emotions and also broader mental health issues. However, we don't really know the direction or the complexity of that relationship. So that's an area where um, we're seeing emerging work. But it is, you know, indicative that people who have a already are experiencing mental health issues and problems that they're more vulnerable, particularly for younger folks who are also trying to find their place in the world. And so this can all kind of compound. Abby, you specifically researched the mental health of climate activists, and that, that research isn't yet published. We should make that clear. But I'm wondering if you can tell us generally what kinds of things you've heard from climate activists about their mental health. Absolutely. I think uh, from anxiety and deep senses of um, grief, one of the things that often comes up is burnout. And it's not just the burnout of working on these issues. It's the burnout that comes from using climate change as a lens to look at other issues in the world. If you're looking at a tree, you, you look at it from the perspective of climate change. If you see cars down the street, you wonder why there isn't good infrastructure for public transit in your community. If you're looking at people walking down the street alone with grocery bags, you wonder why there's such income inequality in the country. Like that results in this deep sense of burnout of not only constantly acting on climate change, but constantly thinking about it and pondering it at every step. Another big thing that came up was just this deep sense of guilt and feelings of hypocrisy. Like this idea that as someone with relative privilege, if you're not experiencing the direct impacts of climate change every day or if you're food secure, or if you're if you have certain things going for you that you shouldn't feel bad because of climate change. And so a lot of young people wonder, like, do I even have the right to feel bad if I'm contributing to this very system? I'm wondering on the treatment end of things, Emily admits she was privileged in that she was able to access treatment in the first place. But she also said there aren't enough climate aware psychologists and psychiatrists who take these kinds of concerns seriously. Gina, what needs to change? Yeah, I think that that was incredibly telling. And I do think we need to have that lens working through our whole healthcare system. So there's been a push that medical schools should be including climate education, nursing schools. And we see that some organizations are making sure that they're trying to provide that sort of training. However, I think we do need to do better awareness and making sure that information gets out to the people who need it. Um, on top of that, there's other types of supports that young people 
to express that they're interested in. And so we need to be able to also understand not just the supports that they can get from healthcare professionals, but what are the types of supports they can have access to in their community, what's appropriate supports, and how do we get them into the hands of people who need them. Abbe, what do do you think on this point? What needs to change? Yeah, beyond the medical system, I think there's so much work that we can do as communities to build up like resilient communities. You know, as more and more people feel the impacts of climate change, more and more people will feel anxious. And so a a solution isn't just to have, you know, a therapist for every anxious person, just because that's not realistic. I think what we need more of is that deep sense of community connectedness that allows people to feel empowered in discussing their climate emotions. One really important thing that I've seen is uh, this thing called climate cafes, like spaces where people can talk about their emotions about climate change without having to provide answers. So it's, you know, a space where you can openly express your emotions. And if you are in a place that's strongly tied to the energy sector, like yet experience impacts of climate change, you know, there are often emotions of, again, hypocrisy or guilt that come up. And those are all valid emotions. And I think you can build an immense sense of community simply by having those conversations in a way that makes people feel safe and heard. And I I hear that and think that that's a way that that can branch out into all sorts of communities. Uh, And and with respect to that, I want to talk a little bit more about marginalized groups. Gina, here in Canada, around the world, there are those groups that are most vulnerable to climate change. Go back to the research phase of this. How do you think that needs to be reflected into the research into climate emotions and how to handle them? Yeah, I think that's definitely something that we need to be doing in terms of our research. So that means making sure that we're including diverse populations, that we are thinking beyond our context. So, for example, we're working on a study right now where we're working on developing a survey And then we've had some connections with researchers in other regions that are experiencing different types of climate change, um, specifically in, in Bangladesh. And so we're talking about potentially sharing information and being able to use that survey in multiple locations so that we can build a better understanding. And I really liked what Abe was saying about, you know, often we're, you know, we're we're missing people who maybe are impacted by their economic dependency on the energy sector and how do they feel. So I think it's important that we're giving space for many different people. And, and, and Abe, with Break the Divide, you focus on mental health and climate change as well as racism and reconciliation. So how do you see racism intersecting with climate change to affect youth mental health? I think from an outside perspective, climate anxiety can be perceived as like an overly white overly like wealthy privilege phenomena. But I think the ways that climate anxiety or climate emotions show up in different groups of people is worth noting that we need to be intentional about the language that we use to talk about climate anxiety. That like someone who's directly impacted on a daily basis, like, you know, people whose towns were whose homes were burnt down and lit in, in the fires, or you know, people who are experiencing the impacts of wildfires firsthand in Canada right now, they might not use the word climate anxiety. But they have very genuine emotions. And I think for racialized communities in Canada, for people that are at the margins, climate anxiety might not be the front of mind, but we need to recognize as like academics in this field, but also as community builders, that climate change exasperates all existing issues to it. It worsens food insecurity, it worsens income inequality, it worsens poverty. And we can't have a conversation about climate change without connecting it back to race and colonialism. 
at Break the Divide, when we connected with youth in Inuvik in the Northwest Territories, one of the biggest things that became so apparent was an additional reason that climate change was impacting the mental health of youth in the Arctic was because climate change is seen as a colonial imposition. Uh, it's not yes. something that the youth in the Arctic have caused. They've done, they've done nothing to deserve it. Yet, much like all other aspects of colonialism, it's inflicted upon their communities and they're experiencing the brunt of the impact. And, and I think it's worth noting who's often left behind in these conversations. Even when we think of um, climate, uh, the wildfires and wildfire smoke, you know, British Columbia and Alberta face smoke from wildfires every year for the past five or six years. And it seems like as, as a British Columbian, I guess what I'm thinking here is that um, the conversation only becomes huge when these fires impact the power centers in Toronto and Ottawa. But even if we take that to the next level, Indigenous communities across Turtle Island have been experiencing the impacts of climate change and environmental degradation from colonialism for decades, and we haven't been listening. There is one other critical thing I want to ask you that, that goes back to, to Emily, but, but it is similar for all kinds of people who get involved in climate activism. We've heard from lots of people we've spoken to on this show that, that their way of dealing with their climate anxiety is to become involved, to take action on all sorts of different levels. Um, I'm wondering, Gina, what you know about whether taking action can help young people cope or whether it can sometimes be harmful. Yeah, and I think that this is something that we want to look into more. But there's some really promising work that shows that coping in a way that's meaningful to you can be protective of your mental well-being. And I think trying to tease out what those coping strategies look like and making sure that that's centered um, in terms of our, our messaging to make sure that people are able to make the choices. There's so many things to be involved in and it can be so overwhelming. But the other positive piece of that is that there's probably something for everyone. So people can be involved if you're potentially a good writer and you want to do some writing. You can you can write about these issues. You can write letters and then other people can sign them and you can send them to your MP. If you're a more social person, you can join a club, you can start a club, you can um, go out and spend time in nature on your own cleaning up. So it's it's knowing that there's a lot that can be done and then being able to find that piece that, you know, really works for you in that moment. And also that can change over time and that's okay. And knowing that there's other things you can contribute. And I think that that's really important too. Okay, I just want to finally ask you, um, we're heading into what we're told is going to be a hot summer, already have been, as we know, unprecedented levels of intense forest fires. Are there resources you can recommend to people who are feeling overwhelmed by climate change? Abe, let's start with you. Yeah, absolutely. There's a ton of resources that exist out there. Um, at Break the Divide, uh, the nonprofit that I've been working on for many years now, we're developing a program that's launching um, very soon to connect young people across Canada to talk about their climate emotions and share how it impacts their local communities. You can check us out online. You can check out um, the Climate Mental Health Network based in the States, but has a lot of really important and powerful um, resources. And, and um, the Mental Health Climate Change Association has some great resources as well. There, I think there's a great organizations out there, but I think another just big part of this is like, this work doesn't have to be external. A lot of it starts internally like feeling your feelings, something that Emily talked about is something that I've been thinking a lot about. Like, how do I 
let myself feel my feelings about climate change, feel my feels, um, and use those emotions to guide how I take action. Like, hope doesn't always have to be the end goal. Uh, I was recently on a panel with Ali Rouget, who's the co-founder of, of Fridays for a Future Toronto. She talked about how anger often does motivate her, but she has it as, at a healthy level where she's still able to live her life. I often think about the ways that I feel anxious and frustrated with the ways that things are going, but that still motivates me. I think if we can build up local action that is both connected to your emotions, that is aligned with your values, uses your passions, but also is, I'd say on a third front, is connected to your community. Like, what are the communities that you're connected to? And how can you work within those spheres of influence? How can you harness the knowledge of your communities to take action? And so in terms of a resource for taking climate action and, and, and dealing with your climate emotions this summer, I'd say think about your positionality, the, your emotions, think about your identity and your communities. All of that together can be a guiding point to take action. Gina, what, what recommendations do you have? The one thing that we've been hearing a lot from young people, so these were more uh, school-aged, you know, when we asked them about the supports, what kind of things they were doing to support themselves through through their difficult emotions. A lot of them were looking for information and doing self-research. But then when we asked them what their desired supports were, many, many young people were saying they wanted accessible information and from a trusted source. So I think that's a place where we can do better in terms of serving young people is coming up with a way of getting the information that they want and finding out how they want it and who are these trusted sources like who do they trust the most and how do we get the information to them that they want and need and again we heard a lot around wanting peer support networks so that's why it's great to hear abby talking about what they're working on at break the divide all right i just want to thank both of you so much for sharing your time and your insights on this really important subject thank you oh it's been a pleasure it's always nice to talk yeah. to you abby i find you so inspirational no thanks laura and great to share space with you gina yeah, thank you, Laura. Traveling by plane is fast and, well, sometimes is convenient, but it also pumps out a lot of carbon emissions, and that's a dilemma for a lot of people. One listener reached out to ask about a different kind of journey. I'm Peter Eastope, and I live on North Pender Island. I've always been interested that I've read about and heard about people traveling on freighters. So I'm interested in surface marine travel as an alternative to air travel. For a retired person, um, a vacation of, say, six weeks or two months would not be unreasonable. Thanks for that question, Peter. It's something that I've never really thought about. So, I asked producer Rohit Joseph to check out Cargo Class. The ocean is one of the most scenic ways to travel. It's also one of the oldest. And cargo ships have got places to go anyway. So why not tag along? John Axon is director of the Sustainable Transportation Research Team at Simon Fraser University. He did the math, and he says compared to hopping on a flight... Taking a trip on a cargo ship means fewer emissions. It's floating. You move. You move slow. You're not. If you're not in a big hurry, even even those ships you see out in harbors, uh, those are you know typically the most efficient way to move cargo around. So you want to use that for passenger travel? Sure. <laughs> I mean, if it's if it's a ship that's already going there, and all you're doing is like the extra crew room, 
that you're in. I mean, you're you you haven't added any energy use to that thing at all, right? It's it's, it's going to be fine. But is this even a thing we can do? As it turns out, yes. Yes, it is. There are several ways to do it. You can try to call a cargo ship company, and depending on their COVID safety regulations, you can see whether you can just jump aboard with their cargo. They may have an extra cabin that you can stay in. But if you want help organizing, there are several cargo ship travel companies, many of them based in Europe, that coordinate everything for you. So let's go back to our listener, Peter. He told me he would be interested in doing a transatlantic cargo ship trip to Europe. Peter would have to get to Halifax and then do a round trip to Antwerp. A Belgian company called Captain Zepos offers this 37-day trip. On their website, they estimate it'll cost more than $4,000 for that trip. So with that much time and that much cost, who tends to do these trips? I posed that question to Joris van Bray, the owner of Captain Zepos. What we offer is time, you know, time away from everything, slow. Uh, if people ask me, yeah, what can you do uh, aboard cargo ships? I immediately say nothing, nothing. There's nothing to do. The right people, they will say, oh, interesting. I can watch the ocean all day, all night. I can watch the stars. I can just sit there. I can talk to my, my fellow passengers. Uh, I can take pictures. I can read a book. Most of them, they take books. They don't even read because they're too busy with looking and enjoying just being aboard. <laughs> okay, so Eurus is obviously hyped on cargo ship travel. But he admits he's always had a passion for ships and the ocean. So I spoke with a travel YouTuber named Tal Oran to get a second opinion. Tal has a fear of flying, so he tries to avoid it as much as possible. Here's how he described his cargo ship trip from Italy to the United States. The cabin was phenomenal. Like I had been traveling, uh, budget backpacking for my entire like four years of traveling up until that point. And I'd never stayed at a place really that nice. It was basically a massive hotel room for two. It was kind of like a little condo with a nice bathroom. Every time we came into port, I could see them hauling cargo on and off. Beautiful views of the ocean. Okay, so far so good, right? Hold your paddles. There are some big caveats. You're spending a lot of time on the sea. And you don't have consistent internet access or cell reception. And when there is a storm, it can be rough. So when we hit the hurricane, we just started to hit the side of a hurricane. The ship was rocking for four days nonstop. Four days, we were going left and right. And another two days, we were going up and down. I couldn't pee normally. I couldn't brush my teeth. I couldn't think straight. I didn't get seasick, but like... You're just like wobbly and dizzy for four days. You're just back and forth, back and forth. Tall decided cargo ship travel wasn't for him. And that's the thing. Cargo ships just aren't going to work for most people. So what can we do as individuals? The obvious thing is being more mindful of our travel. Taking a train or bus are greener alternatives. But John Axon says in the long term, we have to be okay with paying more for flights to reflect their environmental impact. Unless you're Peter Easthope from North Pender Island. Then 
you might seriously consider hopping on a cargo ship. For What on Earth, I'm Rohit Joseph. suddenly feel like I've been boomeranged back into the 1970s. Thanks, Rohit. And thanks to listener Peter Easthope for inspiring that journey. I don't think I'm going to ever embrace the idea of boarding a cargo ship. I'd rather spend my time on a nice sailboat, which is pretty much zero emissions <laughs> if I was going to do a, a long marine journey like that. But uh, hey, it was interesting and it made me smile. So if you have a question about climate solutions in your everyday life, whatever they are, send it to us and we'll try to find the answer. The email is earth at cbc.ca. And hey, maybe you've taken a trip on a cargo ship. We'd like to hear that story too, so let us know. On last week's show, I had a conversation with Jonathan Wilkinson, who's Canada's Minister of Natural Resources, and we talked about the federal government's sustainable jobs legislation. The federal government really just squeaked that in right before Parliament's summer hiatus, didn't it, Laura? Yeah, just a few days to go, it did manage to table that legislation. That's our producer, Molly Siegel, who's joined me in the studio now. Hi. Hi, Laura. Now, that topic is always contentious. Sustainable jobs... In other words, supporting fossil fuel workers making the switch to green jobs like renewables. Yeah, that so-called just transition does get a lot of people talking. And we covered more ground in that conversation, including the federal government's climate action and the recent wildfires. And I know, Molly, you've been waiting through the show's inbox to share some of that feedback from our listeners. That's correct. And Laura, the first email I want to share was in response to this question you asked about disasters related to climate change. Here's the clip. Is your plan fast enough to be able to save communities and homes and people for what's going to be happening on an escalating basis in the years to come? It is a harrowing thing. There is no question about that. And that is certainly the fires that we are seeing today. It is the floods that we are seeing. It is the melting glaciers that are going to have significant impacts on water flows in many parts of the country. It is a climate emergency. We need to act with haste. We are ambitious. And we are always looking for ways to do more. After hearing that, Heather Dunlop in Ottawa emailed us to say, Your last question tried to get at his response to the trauma of people who are experiencing wildfires. Is our action fast enough? Of course it is not fast enough. He still goes back to the 2050 net zero. But ramping up fossil fuel production, as I understand is happening in Canada, doesn't jive with getting to net zero. Thank you, Heather, for that. What what else did we hear, Molly? David Robinson in Sudbury emailed us saying, you missed a question when Wilkinson said Canada was on track relative to other countries. And this is what he would have asked the minister. In your personal view, is the track you refer to going to prevent massive environmental damage and loss of life around the world? There were so many follow-up questions to ask Minister Wilkinson. Unfortunately, we didn't have the kind of time that we needed for all of that. So I thank you for that, David. It is a good question. And Jeff Simpson in Vancouver also wrote to us. Here is part of his email. John F. Kennedy once said, ask not what your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country. In that light, I suggest that the carbon intensive industries in Alberta and elsewhere help suggest ways for their employees to leave the polluting industry and transition to something more sustainable. 
it should not be the responsibility of the Canadian taxpayers. And thanks for reaching out, Jeff. Here's another email from Lorraine Mikichuk, who wrote to us from Alberta. While I'm an 81-year-old woman, I need to speak out more than I do about my nightmare concerns of our planet, and especially for my grandchildren and all the grandchildren in our country and world. Minister of Natural Resources Jonathan Wilkinson's responses were concerning to me. Yes, he does explain his government's policy and plans, but unfortunately, it is not nearly enough. He and governments keep going back to the, we do as much as the others and it will meet the 2050 deadline. And this next part of the email is underlined. This is not enough. This will be too late. Why can't Canada take the lead? I can see that this interview really did spark a lot of interest. Yeah, and we have too much feedback for us to get through, but I will share one more email from Mike Gildersleeve in Mission BC, who writes, I appreciate all your efforts in getting the message out on climate impacts and climate solutions. I am just making a suggestion when speaking with Jonathan Wilkinson that we could make mention of the Climate Performance Index and how Canada is very near the bottom of this list of over 60 countries. I'm curious of what Jonathan would respond to this reality. This certainly reveals the absence of climate leadership. Okay, thanks for that, Molly. And thanks to all of you who emailed us. Remember, if you want to have your say about anything you hear on the show, you can drop us a line, earth at cbc.ca, or send us a voice memo and we may put it on the air. And we've got a bit of time right now for some other climate news from this week. Canada's National Energy Regulator has published a new report showing a future without much demand for fossil fuels. The projection is based on Canada and the world moving toward net zero carbon emissions by 2050. In the scenarios the regulator modeled, oil and gas production would decline as early as 2026 because of falling demand and prices. A county in Oregon is suing a group of oil and gas companies and their business partners over their part in the deadly 2021 heat dome. The lawsuit claims greenhouse gas emissions produced by the companies played a big role in causing those days of stifling heat. It also claims the heat caused the death of 69 people in the county. And the BC coroner says 619 people in the province died from heat-related causes over the course of the heat dome. And of course, you can read more about climate change in the CBC What on Earth newsletter. You can subscribe to have it delivered to your inbox every week. Now remember, you can listen to all of our episodes on demand at CBC Listen, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, leave us a review. I love reading them. That is all, though, for us this week. The show was put together by associate producer Danielle Piper. Producers Rachel Sanders, Molly Siegel, Matt Muse, and Rohit Joseph. Matthias Wolfson is our engineer. Catherine Rolfson is our senior producer. I'm Laura Lynch. I'm off for a few weeks, but you'll be in good hands with some wonderful guest hosts. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.